Well, here we go. Another week of this week in government enforcement is upon us. As always, Jerome Thomas, joined by Tom Firestone. We've got a full week, so let's just kick right off. Um, uh, Tom is going to start us out talking about uh, the latest in the ban and contempt proceedings. I'm going to talk about last week's uh, SEC report regarding their findings from the January market events, i.e. the memes, the meme stock, meme stock, game stop. AMC trading frenzy, and then I'm going to talk about the the CFTC's action in uh, in the matter of Tether Holdings at all, which marks an important reminder in where the uh, CFTC views themselves lying from a jurisdictional and enforcement standpoint in crypto. And uh, spoil the surprise, they view themselves fairly broadly as being probably the most expansive regulatory agency in the U.S. when it comes to crypto enforcement. Um, but we'll get into that more later. Tom, why don't you start us out, all right? Great. Thanks, Jerome. Um, I wanted to continue what I talked about last week, which is the Steve Bannon contempt proceedings. As we predicted last week, the House Select Committee voted to hold him to make a referral to DOJ to have him criminally prosecuted for contempt of Congress. The House as a whole voted and approved this resolution, and Speaker Pelosi transmitted the request to the Department of Justice, as she is required to do under the statute. So what happens next? Well, the statute, the operative statute is 2 U.S.C. 194, and it says that after the Speaker um, certifies the findings of the House, uh, it is the duty of the Speaker to then um, transmit the request to the Department of Justice to the appropriate United States Attorney, and I'm quoting from the statute, whose duty it shall be to bring the matter before the grand jury for its action. So what does this mean? Whose duty it shall be to bring the matter before the grand jury. Does this mean that the Department of Justice has to indict Steve Bannon for contempt? That's what the statute seems to say. It's right there. But it's not necessarily the case. And in fact, Merrick Garland, as we know, said, we will decide the case on the facts and the law as we always do. And in this, he's relying on some precedent from the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel, OLC, which has weighed in on this issue during in previous cases in which there has been a referral for criminal prosecution for contempt from Congress. Um, the there is a 2014 OLC opinion, which cites a 1984 OLC opinion. Both of them basically say that despite the wording of the statute, the Department of Justice retains its traditional prosecutorial discretion to decide whether or not to bring criminal charges. The logic underlying these opinions is basically, look, prosecutorial discretion is an essential part of our system. They also get a little bit cute and they say, well, look, you know, it just says you have to bring the matter before the grand jury. Now, if the grand jury votes to return an indictment, the U.S. attorney doesn't have to actually sign the indictment or bring charges based on the indictment, which is obviously not what the statute intends. But DOJ is not going to be boxed in and told by Congress that it has to bring charges if it doesn't feel like it. The third part of these opinions is really interesting, though, goes to congressional constitutional separation of powers. The opinion, um, the 1984 opinion cited approvingly by the 2014 opinion says that if it were mandatory, this would create two distinct problems with respect to the separation of powers. It would strip the executive of its proper constitutional authority and vest improper power in Congress in contravention of the principle that 
the ultimate decision with respect to prosecution of individuals must remain an executive function under the Constitution. So it's clear from all of this, the DOJ believes that it has discretion, and I think any court would uphold it, um, would uphold that um, position. But what's, so they may or may not indict Bannon, but what I think is significant about this is if they go do go ahead and indict Bannon, these arguments give him the potential argument that he has been indicted unconstitutionally. He can come back and say, look, the statute that led to my indictment by the Department of Justice improperly uh, vests the power to bring charges with Congress. That's a violation of separation of powers. DOJ felt that it was forced by the statute, forced by Congress to bring these charges. We want discovery into DOJ's decision-making process. Were they aware of their discretion when they decided to charge me? How pressured did they feel by the wording of the statute and by Congress? Now, I don't think he would win on those arguments, but these would give him plausible arguments that he could make to tie up the, the, the case in litigation, which, as we've discussed before, is... I don't think anyone disputes that's really the Republicans' goal, hoping to drag this out till after the 2022 midterms in the hopes that they get control of the House of Representatives again. So that's one issue. Um, DOJ has discretion, and as the Attorney General has indicated, they will exercise that discretion and make their own decision about what to do, regardless of what Congress has said, regardless of what the President has already said. Now, what about the substantive issues? are they likely to use their discretion to bring criminal charges against Mr. Bannon? And as I mentioned last week, there's some precedent here. We've had several cases before where there have been these kinds of referrals. You have to go back to 1983, the Rita Lavelle case, in which the Department of Justice actually decided to bring charges. What they have done consistently is when they looked at these potential cases, and there was an invocation of executive privilege, as there is in this case, they've basically taken the position that, um, I'm reading from one of the opinions, the criminal contempt of Congress statute does not apply to the president or presidential subordinates who assert executive privilege. The principles that protect an executive branch official, official from prosecution for declining to comply with a congressional subpoena based on a directive from the president asserting executive privilege shield a current or former, former important here because Bannon is former, senior advisor to the president from prosecution for lawfully, lawfully again is an important word, invoking his or her immunity from compelled congressional testimony. So there are some, you know, some precedent and the precedent is very much against bringing charges after such a referral. Um, what makes this situation different is that in every one of the other cases, you had a sitting president telling the subordinate that I'm invoking executive privilege. Here we have a former president. Now, that raises the question of whether or not Bannon's invocation of executive privilege and Trump's invocation of executive privilege can said to be in good faith. Does Bannon have a good faith argument that he cannot testify because of executive privilege? Or is this so obviously fatuous, given the fact that Trump is a former, not sitting president, that it, this invocation could be said to be in bad faith, warranting his criminal prosecution? I, all the you know in, indications are that the executive privilege is designed to apply only to a sitting president for obvious reasons. However, it's not that 100% entirely clear. There is, as I've mentioned before, something called the Presidential Records Act, a law passed by Congress, which regulates the disclosure of presidential records by the National Archives after a president's term in office. 
And the Presidential Records Act, 44 USC 2206, among other things, requires the National Archives to give a former president notice of the disclosure of the former president's um, records and an opportunity to object to that. Now, it doesn't give the former president the power to decide what's disclosed, but it does give the former president a role in the process, thereby recognizing the former president's interest in privilege after the president's term. Now, whether or not that would apply in this case, again, not clear, but it's, again, gives Bannon some arguments to say, look, it's not, you know, it's not automatic that it's a former president has no executive privilege rights. In fact, there's a congressional statute, there is a law, which gives the president, so the former president such rights. That's what I was relying on. That's what my lawyer told me that we had a good faith argument to make and we should let it play out in the courts. Now, this is important. Again, these arguments probably would not succeed, almost certainly would not succeed. But what makes this important in terms of the criminal prosecution, again, is the statute under which Bannon would be prosecuted to USC 192 uh, has a willfulness component. It requires proof that the defendant acted willfully. The DOJ manual defines willfully as an act done voluntarily and intentionally, and here's the key language, with the specific intent to do something that the law forbids. Now you see Bannon has some defenses here on willfulness grounds. He may say, okay, no executive privilege, I was wrong, I understand that I have to I have to testify, but I consulted with a lawyer. The lawyer told me there was a valid argument here about executive privilege. I relied on the lawyer's advice. The lawyer wrote a letter to the congressional committee. The lawyer said, we've got this privilege issue hanging out there. My client's not going to testify. However, if a court decides otherwise, he may come in and testify. It's very hard on that to show that the defendant, that Bannon acted willfully. So what we have here is I think DOJ has an incredibly difficult decision before them because there's going to be political pressure to move on this coming from Congress. And already the president has said that he thinks DOJ should prosecute. On the other hand, they're running up against the, the plain language of the statute, this incredibly high bar of willfulness. So what Congress has really played kind of a dirty trick on the Justice Department, I would say, because they've got this difficult situation. What they've done is they just sort of dumped it on the Department of Justice. And now they can say, look, we wanted to prosecute Bannon. We wanted to compel his testimony. We took the harshest measure possible by re referring him for criminal prosecution. And the Justice Department said no. So don't blame us, blame them. We're being aggressive. We're trying to move forward with this. The Justice Department said no. So it's a clever maneuver by the committee. What they could have done instead, and were we in a different situation politically, where this an ordinary case rather than a case with political overtones, they could have done when the witness refused, they could have said, okay, we're going to move for civil contempt. We're going to go before a judge and ask the judge to order you to come in and explain the basis for the invocation of privilege. Um, answer the questions, invoke on selectively, you know, invoke um, individually in response to individual questions rather than just make a blanket assertion of privilege. And if the court rules that you have to answer, then you're going to have to come in and answer. That would have been the normal way to proceed. I think they didn't want to do that for a couple of reasons. One is the statute on civil contempt, for reasons I don't really understand, refers to the Senate, not the House of Representatives. So Bannon would have had an argument that the House doesn't have the right to seek civil contempt. I think he would lose on that. But again, that would provide him grounds for litigation. And also just 
there'd be a lot of litigation around this and they um they would have to bring him in he would invoke in part and it would just drag things out and i think they would then be subject to criticism they didn't move aggressively enough to compel his testimony they let him slip out of it by running out the clock and dragging it past the midterms so what they chose to do is basically dump the whole problem in uh doj's lap and now it's going to be very interesting to see how doj deals with this so with that jerome i'll turn it back to you Fascinating stuff, Tom. Fascinating stuff. Um, a year, a year into it, almost, and we're still um, more than a year, but a year after, sort of post-election, we're still talking about stuff from the old administration. Fascinating. Um, I want to. And start- it's going to go on. It's not going away anytime. No, so it, it, it's not going this for anywhere. a while. I just. <laughs> thinking, I can't believe we're still. This talking is the about beginning, this. not the end. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so I'm going to talk about the, the in the matter of Tether Holdings at all case. Uh, it's the most recent reminder from the CFTC that it is asserting a prominent role in the regulation and enforcement of cryptocurrencies. Um, this particular case is significant because it shows that the CFTC views crypto tokens themselves as opposed to futures or derivatives or some other kind of special instrument, but the actual underlying crypto to be commodities subject to the anti-fraud and anti-manipulation provisions of the Commodities Exchange Act. It's not a particularly well-publicized position, um, but it's one that we can see that the CFTC is taking, and actually certain commissioners with the CFTC are actually actively touting in the public, and we'll get to that in a little bit. So real quick, the case, the facts of this case, pretty straightforward. <laughs> in 2014, I keep looking at my phone because I'm gonna pull up my, my account. In 2014, Tether introduced the stable coin um, that, that it touted as a U.S. dollar tether token. Um, it also offered tokens denominated in other uh, fiat currencies. Basically, the tether tokens provide a medium of exchange across various cryptocurrency trading platforms. So if you see right here, you'll see all this U.S. dollar to USDT, Bitcoin to USDT stuff. So I go to my account, I buy U.S. dollar tether with U.S. dollars. I can then buy Bitcoin and then sell Bitcoin and put it in the tether and then transfer that U.S. dollar tether amongst myriad different uh, uh, cryptocurrency trading platforms and trade it on those platforms as I deem fit. So it's essentially a substitute for U.S. dollars, a way to transfer fiat currencies and a token between platforms. Um, <laughs> according to the CFTC, um, Tether misrepresented to customers and to the market that Tether maintains sufficient fiat reserves to back every U.S. dollar token in circulation one-to-one with the equivalent amount of corresponding fiat currency uh, reserves held by Tether. <laughs> Tether also told investors that it underwent routine professional audits demonstrate that it maintained 100% reserves at all times. And so here's where, according to the CFTC, the other shoe drops. During the majority of the relevant period, they said Tether did not maintain fiat currency reserves and accounts in its own names or trust accounts to back every US dollar token in circulation up to the one-to-one ratio. Um, some Tether reserves were in accounts other than Tether bank accounts and other accounts held receivables and non-fiat currency assets among the reserves it counted um, in getting to that one-to-one ratio, one token to one uh, US dollar fiat currency ratio. Um, also until at least 2018, Tether utilized, according to the CFTC, a manual process to track the Tether reserves, which did not capture real-time status of the, those reserves. And then from at least uh, 2018 through February 25th, 2019, 
Um, Tether didn't disclose that the Tether reserves included unsecured receivables, commercial paper, funds held by third parties and other non-fiat assets. And finally, the CFTC said the Tether reserves were not routinely audited. Um, the CFTC's allegations here that the U.S. dollar tokens, these Tether, USD Tether tokens are commodities, um, that's their allegation, right? Because they're not alleging that there's a futures related to a crypto asset. They're saying the fraud related to statements made by Tether Holdings related to the one-to-one -one convertibility or the reserves related to these tokens themselves. So what is the legal basis for that, right? I mean, because these are digital assets and the CFTC has jurisdiction over commodities, right? Futures, but they also have enforcement authority in certain respect over commodities. Well, the, the, the allegations here are pretty clunky and hard to discern. The CFTC says digital assets such as Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and other Tether tokens are commodities. As defined under Section 1A9 of the Act, commodities with limited exceptions includes, include, quote, all manner of other goods and articles and all services, rights, and interests in which contracts for future delivery are presently or in the future dealt with. And they go on to define commodities in many senses in, in the allegations as being tied somehow to um, rights or interests in which contracts for future, deliver, future delivery are presently or in the future dealt with. Um, uh, you know, again, they say they fall within the common definition of commodity as well as the X definition of commodities as all other goods and articles in which contracts for future delivery are presently or in the future dealt with. And look, this case caught my attention because I've been looking up on and, and researching the CFTC's views on their enforcement jurisdiction over crypto. And, and when I read this, I scratched my head and scratched it again. I said, well, what exactly are they saying? Because we've talked about this a little in the past, right? The CFTC has regulatory authority, regulatory authority over uh, crypto assets or, or futures contracts in crypto assets. So they can regulate and impose paperwork requirements and margin requirements and other more technical regulatory requirements over um, market participants and futures contracts with the underlying in, um, in crypto. But the CFTC has also been pretty clear that they have fraud and anti-manipulation enforcement authority, not regulatory authority, enforcement authority over crypto assets because crypto assets are commodities. The CFTC has come out and said that. Um, but what's, what I'm scratching my head here is saying, well, why didn't they just say that? Why, why did they instead muddy the waters with their jurisdictional statement that, um, that, that somehow this is potentially tied to contracts for future delivery? The answer is, I don't know, um, right? I, I, think, I, think, I think these agencies and frankly, the courts are still struggling with what these assets are and are they a commodity? Are they a security? When do they become move from a security to not a security? When is something uh, a commodity for purpose of enforcement or uh, alone, or when is, is a commodity for purpose of regulation. I think these agencies and the courts are still struggling with it a bit. Um, however, based on the, the settled order citing CFTC versus McDonald, uh, McDonald, where they allege that U.S. dollar tokens constitute a commodity interstate commerce under Section 6C1 of the Act, um, uh, and citing McDonald for the proposition that those provisions of the CEA can be violated by, quote, fraudulent misrepresentations 
in connection with digital asset transactions as those digital assets were commodities in interstate commerce. My read on this is that they are taking the view that because the allegations here are fraud and misrepresentation, not necessarily manipulation, but misrepresentations, that um, that is sufficient to bring these USD tether tokens within the jurisdictional enforcement ambit of the, um, the CFTC. <laughs> and, and, and looking at some of the stuff they've said in the past, including a, uh, a, a, uh, an August 2021 um, speech or prepared comments by Commissioner Don um, Stump relating to the enforcement authority and anti-manipulation authority of the CFTC over Bitcoin in which this exact proposition, which is we have, we the CFTC have enforcement authority over fraud and manipulation in cash transactions in crypto. That was the essence of a, one of the points, the essence of one of the points in this speech. To me, I'm putting it all together and I'm saying what the CFTC is alleging here is they've, they've got jurisdiction because this is fraud, misrepresentation or manipulation in connection with a, a cash transaction in, in, a, uh, in a crypto asset. But again, not entirely clear. It's a settled matter. So we're probably not going to find out more about this. Um, but certainly, while I'm not saying this, this case asks more questions than it answers, it certainly has piqued my interest as to where the CFTC is going with this. I want to see how they define their jurisdictional reach in additional cases, um, because certainly it wasn't as clear as I thought it would have been um, based on some of the things the agency's been saying more recently. Um, now, I also want to follow up on last January's uh, market frenzy, right? We, we hit that for a couple of weeks straight. Um, last week, the SEC released its staff report on equity and options market structure conditions in early 2021. <coughs> um, the SEC's report contained a number of interesting factual findings, a few of which I pulled out here. Um, one, everyone's waiting for this. I was waiting for it too, and I didn't get it. If you're waiting for, was there fraud, was there manipulation, this report isn't going to give it to you. Um, the report avoided pretty much altogether any discussion of fraud and man manipulation. And I think that was by design. It wasn't intended to get into that. It was intended to get into the issues related to the equity and options market structure and what, um, what structural issues um, failed or were, were weak that could have caused the wild swings in these prices. But again, I found it interesting that manipulate shows up once and derivatives of the term fraud three times, and they're all in footnotes. Never once is it in the body of the report. Um, still, there's some interesting information. Um, you know, they, 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 you know, they looked at this, the, the SEC looked at this and said, look, some brokers have sought to attract new customers by offering the ability to purchase fractional shares. And fractional shares give uh, investors the ability to purchase less than one share of a stock. You'll see some trends uh, emerge here. Many brokers have eliminated trading commissions and lowered or eliminated account minimums. And they cited Robinhood as being one of them, but not the only other, not the only one, cited a bunch of other established firms in the financial market in the financial markets as lowering or eliminating account minimums <coughs> and commissions. Um, and then they said, but hold on. Um, although retail broker dealers have reduced commissions, some have maintained or increased other sources of revenues through practices such as payment for order flow, advisory services or management accounts, 
interest earned on margin loans or cash deposits, interest generated from securities lending and fees from additional services. And they said, recent commission enforcement actions have highlighted some of the conflicts of interest faced by broker dealers with respect to certain of these things. If you remember, we talked about this, um, Robinhood was actually sued by the SEC um, right before the market frenzy in December of 2020, I recall, for failure to disclose fully order flow and payment for order flow violations. So again, the SEC is saying, look, we're entering a new world where firms need to think about how they're making money and if those practices are fully disclosed to investors. Um, uh, and here's what I found really interesting, Tom. They're, they're getting there, right? Some broker dealers report that younger investors and smaller accounts have seen note have been have been notable sources of new account openings. For example, Charles Schwab indicated that individual investor customers aged 40 and below with account balances below 100,000 are driving a greater percentage of trading volume than in prior periods. Robinhood reported that its average customer is 31 years old and has a median account balance of, wait for it, $240.30. Yes. It was, that, it was that line right there. That, that, that's what this report is all about. 31 years old, $240 is the average account balance or the median account balance. Um, here we go. There's, there's some more. Um, according to one study, approximately 6 million accounts opened in 2020. Um, that's a 137% increase from the year before. And about 1 million of those 6 million accounts belong to investors with an average age of 19 years old. So what they're saying is you've got young folks who are getting into the space with not a lot of money in their accounts, and they're, they're playing the markets. And now what that means, they really don't, they, they really don't conclude much from there, um, and they, 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 but they, they do note it. And it's, it's significant that they sort of develop this theory. And then they say like, let's take on this notion of the short squeeze. The SEC said, <laughs> given the high levels of short interest together with the price movements in game stock, a natural question is the degree to which the price movements arose from the short squeeze. Uh, they said, look, indeed, some of the meme stock trading was described in news coverage as an act of rebellion against short-selling professional investors who had targeted GameStop and other stocks. A short squeeze might occur when an event triggers short sellers en masse to purchase shares to cover short positions. The staff went on to say, um, look, we don't know that that happened. It might have happened, but it might not have happened. During some periods, GameStop had a sharp uh, price increases concurrently with known short sellers covering their short positions. So that doesn't necessarily mean that there was a short squeeze. There was just a demand from professional um, short sellers to cover their positions. The SEC also said their data that um, the data said that, that this covering was a small fraction of the overall buy volume um, and that GameStop share prices continued to be high after the direct efforts of covering short positions would have waned. Um, however, what the SEC said is, quote, the underlying motivation of such buy volume cannot be determined. Perhaps it was motivated by the desire to maintain a short squeeze. Whether driven by a desire to squeeze short sellers and profit from the resultant rise in price or by a belief in the fundamentals of GameStop, it was the positive sentiment 
not the buying to cover that sustained a weeks long price appreciation of GameStop stock. Um, so again, it's we talked about this, this manipulation concept. It's tough to separate desire and belief in the underlying stock from an intent to squeeze the shorts, from an intent to engage in manipulation. Because frankly, I don't even believe that a, that, that a, a pure market-based short squeeze is actionable under the federal securities laws. It, it, there, there has to be some other you know, concerted effort wash trades, right? There was a settlement a couple of weeks ago where wash trades were alleged to have been the manipulative device that um, gave rise to um, liability under the securities laws. But without a statement to the market or some other trade-based manipulation, merely buying stock is not going to be enough to, to, to bring the, the liability under the federal securities laws into play. And I think while that's not the goal of this paper, that's kind of what they're saying. But they also went on to say, look, um, the unusually amount, the unusually high amount of short selling raised questions about whether there were some naked shorting going on, namely shorting um, being made without having in, in advance arranging to borrow the underlying stock. When a short sale occur, when a naked short sale occurs, the seller fails to deliver the securities to the buyer. And the staff did observe a lot of failures to deliver in game stock. So what they're looking at, and I could see some investigations coming out of this, is were there some naked shorts happening on the hedge fund side? It would surprise me if there are investigations going on right here. Um, 44 pages of the report. It was thick. It was long. A lot of graphs. We're not here to get into all of it. But they, they noted four things. The SEC noted four things for further review. Um, they said, one, we noted further inquiry regarding forces that may cause brokerage to restrict trading. A number of uh, clearing brokers experienced interday margin calls from a clearinghouse. In reaction, some broker dealers decided to restrict trading in a limited number of individual stocks in a way that investors might not have anticipated. This episode highlights the integral role that clearing plays in risk management for equity trading, but also raises questions about possible effects of margin calls on thinly capitalized broker dealers. Second, digital engagement practices and payment for order flow. They said consideration needs to be given to whether game-like features, the gamification of trading time, right? We talked about this and celebratory animations that are likely intended to create positive feedback from trading lead investors to trade more than they would otherwise. In addition, payment for order flow and the incentives it creates may, create broker, may cause broker dealers to find novel ways to increase customer trading, including through the use of digital engagement practices. Again, this concept of making trading like a game and bringing in some of the younger people who are used to playing games on their phone, and therefore it's not a huge leap to have game-like trading on their phone. The SEC is clearly concerned about this. <coughs> Two more, trading in dark pools through wholesalers. <coughs> they said much of the retail order flow in game stock was purchased by wholesalers and executed off exchange. I said this trading uh, is less visible to the wider market and payments to broker dealers may raise questions about the execution quality investors received. Fourth, short selling and market dynamics. They said while short selling and calls on social media for short squeezes received a great deal of media attention, the interplay between shorting and price dynamics is more complex than these narratives would suggest. Improved reporting of short sales would allow regulators 
to better track these dynamics. So what they're saying is, look, we know that's what everyone was saying, right? Is that this is a short squeeze and that isn't it a crime for somebody to engage in a practice intended to harm short sellers. They're not saying it is, they're not saying it isn't, but what they're saying is we need a better way to track more transparently what's happening in the short market. Also, presumably um, for naked shorting as well and covering shorts um, in, so that we can better monitor when events like this happen in the future, what was underpinning the, the price movements in the stock. Again, they raised more questions and issues spotted more than they answered questions. But I wanted to bring this to a close because there were some articles. Again, our partner, Pete Tomzak, sent me an article last week and the caption was, what happened in GameStop wasn't manipulation. Something like that, right? I'm paraphrasing. And my response was, oh my God, well, A, I think that's right. But B, I'm going to talk about this anyway next week. So th this is going to be getting some attention either has last week or will continue to get some attention. But I wanted to talk to you guys about kind of what this report is and what it isn't. It certainly is an indictment on the the sort of the 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 bear the bear raiders, if you will, right? These the the, the these uh, the, the, these GameStop stockers, the, the meme stockers. Certainly, it's not out there saying that they're engaged in wrongdoing or that they engage in manipulation. It's more of a look. This is a brand new world that we are just beginning to understand and need to think about what kind of information we need and what additional knowledge we need to get um, from the market in order to better understand and avoid the rapid uh, or, or, or the crazy manic price swings that we saw last January. So a lot in there, go out and look at it if you want. I tried to reduce it in 15 minutes, probably didn't do it uh, justice, but I wanted to do my best. Really interesting stuff. A um, lot more to talk about this. And again, this is another one of those areas that's just beginning to develop in the law. The technology and the practices are ahead of the law. So there's a yeah. lot. There's yeah, a lot of technical development to be done. Yeah, you're you're like the two things I talked about today: crypto and and the the meme stock phenomenon. The securities laws were not, nor really even the commodities laws, were not designed and drafted to deal with these issues. Our, our legal system was not meant to deal with cryptocurrency and figuring out what it is and what it isn't. So um, we're only at the beginning of trying to figure this out. If anyone tells you they haven't figured it out, I think they're lying. Um, I would listen to them, but I would also question what they say. Um, and I'm not calling them a liar, but I am. Um, anyway. <laughs> it's true across the whole spectrum of legal issues. Our legal system was not designed to deal with social media and all the issues that that has created. So we're living in a fascinating time because of the technological developments have prevented, presented new challenges for the law. And so never a dull moment. Never a dull moment. And with that, gathering crowds will take us away. Take care, everyone.